Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits, and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Carol Francis, and I have the pleasure of interviewing John Herlowski about a skill that you'll have to practice in order to become very good at it, um, but it's worthy of practicing called remote viewing. And the thing is, as John's book will show you, A Sorcerer's Apprentice, A Skeptic's Journey, the thing is, is that most people just wish these skills would come easily and naturally and spontaneously because we're not the generation of hard work. But John, that's not the way this works, is it? It takes tenacity and diligence and discipline to learn to remote view. Tell us a little bit about that practice and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Carol. Uh, for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, um, learning the scientific practice of remote viewing does take a lot of effort and practice, uh, as well as a little bit of innate talent. Uh, some of the luckier yeah. ones have this as uh, a natural part of their life and have grown up with it, you know, natural psychics. But as for myself... I was not a natural psychic. As a matter of fact, I was a skeptic up until um, I read a book by Dr. David Morehouse called Psychic Warrior. And it chronicled his experience working in the um, military's remote viewing program. And mm-hmm. it was a, an eye-opening experience, to say the least as I had been, as I said, a a skeptic regarding um, anything that had to do with extrasensory perception. So um, I decided to find out if there was anything to this. Uh, One of the reasons why I decided to do this was the fact that um, Morehouse was also, like me, uh, a skeptic, and who had never had any previous uh, psychic phenomena occur for him, just like uh, in my case. I'd never had a premonition come true. I'd never had any type of um, psychic phenomena occur. And the surprising fact is is that he was taught by the military to use this skill. Hmm. And that was the part that really intrigued me. And in 1999, the spring of, I went to UCLA and uh, took a class in beginning remote viewing by Dr. Morehouse and never looked back and had some amazing adventures over the next seven years. 
Well, actually, it's been almost 18 years since you've been practicing remote viewing, and and then you've written this book, A Sorcerer's Apprentice, A Skeptic's Journey, which is really also another chronicle of your skepticism and events and stories that really mark how remote viewing is very powerful and, like you say, a scientific tool. You care to share a story that has occurred since you've written that book? Well, um, I, I will uh, let me. Uh, if you've read the book, then you, then you know of this particular experience that I did have, and this was in uh, Dr. Morehouse's uh, advanced class called Extended Remote Viewing or ERV. And in that particular instance, uh, the target that I had been given, which of course I was unaware of. Um, I had no idea what the target was. We were just given a set of coordinates, uh, randomized numbers that stood for the concept of the target. And the information I reported back on um, was actually the Mars Sojourner rover in the Twin Peaks area of Mars. Now, I did not know at the time that it was Mars. It just, to me, it seemed like it was a this desert-like plateau. But one of the things that I did report in this uh, particular session was the fact that I had ex- had seen a what appeared to me to be a dust devil, um, a very large and powerful one. And to my extended vision in um, this session, it appeared as if it had uh, like fireflies floating up through the column this electrical energy flowing up through it, which was interesting because this was in, uh, let's see, the fall of 1999. And at that time, NASA was just getting information that there were dust devils on Mars. However, one of the things that was not found until later, uh, almost a year and a half after that, was the fact that dust devils are charged with a very high level of electrical charge to them. Uh, Terrestrial uh, dust devils uh, were measured uh, by scientists at the University of Arizona, and they were found to contain large amounts of electrical static uh, electricity in them. And this is because what happens is uh, as the dust devil pulls sand and dust particles up into the column, uh, the heavier particles stay down low and the lighter particles are drawn higher up. And, this co- and the movement and friction of these particles rubbing against each other causes static electrical charge. And the, the dust devils here on Earth are relatively benign. Um, I've been in the middle of one, as a matter of fact, uh, and it's kind of exciting, but it's uh, they're not particularly dangerous. However, on Mars, um, the dust devils, because of the lesser gravity and the environmental conditions on Mars, are large and can move can move upwards of eight kilometers or so into the atmosphere. Now, the atmosphere, of course, is only one one hundredth of of what it is here on Earth, but the charge, the electrical charge that is in these um, uh, dust devils is very, very strong, much stronger than it is here on Earth. And 
what they found can happen is is that this charged dust sticks to the solar cells on the um, the, the rovers and can degrade the amount of energy going into the batteries. And so they theorize that this could also pose a problem for astronauts should they be on Mars because that would interfere with both communications and visibility. So that was something that was not known at the time that I had done my session, and yet here I had, I had given accurate, scientifically valid data in my session a year and a half before it was actually discovered. Mm-hmm. Now you you repeatedly emphasize the scientific aspect of remote viewing, which is one of the distinctions between psychic skills and remote viewing. My understanding is, do you want to describe some of the empirical components of remote viewing? Well, um, basically, what what remote viewing is is learning a conversation with your unconscious mind. Um, it's not something that's really esoteric per se it's it's actually an ability that almost everybody has uh, to a lesser or greater degree and basically what this training involves which uh, was developed over years of scientific methodology and research is to learn this um, dialogue if you will of how the unconscious mind works and it's through this doorway if you will that information can come from outside into your consciousness. Um, the techniques are, um, depending upon which system you use, are, are relatively rigid, but they are designed that way because learning how to to understand what you are seeing or feeling or experiencing is oftentimes for the beginning remote viewer, difficult because you're not exactly sure what you are experiencing. And in many cases, the information that comes in is, is fragmentary or very brief, and a flash of information might come in, and you have to learn how to recognize and interpret the, uh, the data that comes in. The scientific aspect of it in terms of the government was establishing a very constant protocol for people to do the remote viewing activities and then a very constant protocol for independent people to actually evaluate the the scribblings, the writings, the responses of the remote viewers. And have we continued that empirical uh, rigidity, so to speak, with remote viewing training, or no? Well, yeah, yes. The The training was very rigorous because you have to understand that remote viewing was was created under a an umbrella of science, if you will. Um, the men who created it were scientists. They weren't um, uh, military men, and they weren't, um, uh, well, how would you put it, uh, they weren't basically, they weren't psychics. These were scientists, laser physicists, um, Dr. Hal Plutoff and Dr. Russell Targ were the two main scientists. Uh, there were others involved in the program as well, like Dr. Ed May and a number of others. Uh, uh, Dr. Let's see. Oh, I can't think of his name. Tart. Dr. Tart. Dr. Russell. Uh, Dr. 
from from Stanford, right? Yeah, yeah, from Stanford. Uh, I, yeah. I, I'm ashamed to say I, I can't recall his it's, first name. It's, uh, oh yeah, he was. But he, in any he's case, so much research on consciousness. So it's been a, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So let's move on because I just wanted the audience to have a flavor for the scientific aspect of this, how it's grounded in empirical research, and. My experience of remote viewing is that it has been uh, very intently, the trick of it has been finding out how my particular take of data configures inside of my experience of it, in contrast to how it configures for other people. So that, for example, if I'm if I'm tuned in in a certain way, I get data in a certain way, that tends to be more accurate than any other form of collecting data. And discussing this with other remote viewers, it seems like their way of collecting the data and knowing that that tends to be more accurate is different than mine, and theirs is different than others, so that there's this unique kind of fingerprint uh, upon which remote viewers bring to a circumstance. Is that congruent with your experience in being part of so many training sessions, being a trainer yourself, what is that like for you? Yeah, it's basically the same thing. Although the protocols and methodology of remote viewing are are relatively rigid, uh, the experience of each remote viewer is unique. And the way each of us sees or hears or, or experiences a session in remote viewing is is different for for each individual, so it becomes um, as individual as the as the subject himself is. And yeah. I know that um, from my own point of view, uh, I tend to be very visual and very, um, I guess, kinesthetic or um, uh, you know, intuitional, if you will. And so my mm-hmm. my viewing sessions, my drawings, and so on, tend to reflect that. But others, I have uh, other remote viewers. Uh, for instance, um, my friend Sandra, who is mentioned in the book, uh, her experience is in a different modality. She is very, very attuned to things like smells and tastes and uh, textures um, so that her experience and her session um, looks would look completely different than one uh, that I would have, and so. But the 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 neat part about that is is that it's complementary, because she will take she will pick up aspects of the target that I miss, as well as I will pick up targets, uh, or I will pick up information about a target that she might not uh, be aware of. So it's always better to have more than one remote viewer work a target because you can get different aspects of that target based on the fact that each of us see it as an individual. Mm-hmm. So then it, because it's so individualistic, how do you know when you've completely erred <laughs> that this has nothing to do with the target and when you're just seeing another aspect of it? Um, normally, if you were doing something like a regular target session, um, you don't really know whether the information you're getting is on target or not. You're, you're not taught to analyze it. You're, you're, you're taught to um, record it 
Okay. You don't want to put too much analysis into your target sessions because that brings into um, an aspect of of analysis and the possibility of generating your own take on the information that you're getting. And what can happen is is that your mind wants to try and put labels on things it sees, and that can draw you away from the actual aspect of the target. You might think that the information is telling you that you're looking at a castle, for instance, and what it turns out to be is simply a rock formation that looks somewhat like a castellated um, building. So the idea is, is that you record information, but you don't try and put any uh, analysis into it. The analysis is, is for later, and is usually done by someone else. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the psychics that I know, um, who, who have a, a certain percentage of accuracy, tend to not put themselves through such rigorous empirical scrutiny. Uh, very rarely do I find anyone that keeps records of what they see, what they're experiencing, that goes and reconnects with the individual they've done the psychic reading for, seeing where they were off or where they were on. They don't do that kind of personal day-by-day, how accurately am I reading, what information is being given to me. But the remote viewer does do that. You're, well, you're we're keeping... taught. Yeah, we're taught to do that. Um, all of the instructors that I know of keep voluminous records. As a matter of fact, I have, I can go back all the way to the very start of my remote viewing career and pull out sessions that I've done. Um, I have literally uh, volumes and stacks of of target sessions that I've done. And the reason for that is, of course, uh, part of the scientific method. Uh, If you don't write it down, number one, it doesn't exist. Number two, to have a record of how you view and that gives you um, a chance to see how you mature as a remote viewer. Um, And you're taught that from the very beginning. I mean, it's one of the very important things that uh, remote viewing instructors will will give you. It's the fact that um, you need to record the data. You need to keep a, um, a, a record of the type of, of work that you do so that you always have that as a standard by which you can measure your advance. So the, the experience that we're having right now is talking with John Herlosco about remote viewing, and he is the author of A Sorcerer's Apprentice, A Skeptic's Journey, which is available on Amazon. I have the link on the, the front of this radio show. Please do check out. John, you, you've written a really readable and enjoyable, interesting book that also captures the experience of what it means to be a remote viewer. And let's just, for those that have tuned in, just describe a remote viewing uh, experience so that they know what we're talking about. And then let's go on to talking about remote influence and brain entrainment and that sort of thing. So how do we illustrate what an individual that's seeking a remote viewing experience can aim toward? And what is it like? What does it do? And what example do you want to give that enlivens this understanding? Well, um, it depends upon what type of remote viewing session you you are undertaking. 
um, I was taught two different modalities. Uh, one is called CRV, which stands for, or originally it stood for coordinate remote viewing. Uh, now I believe they, they, the more accurate term is controlled remote viewing. And then there's the other form, major uh, modality, which is extended remote viewing. Um, in most remote viewing sessions, it's kind of like looking at a, one of the old analog-style TVs with the rabbit ear antennas, and you're trying to tune into a station that's far away, so you get a lot of static, and every once in a while you'll be able to make out uh, the shape of an object, and you keep turning your rabbit ears, trying to get a, uh, a better lock on the station, and so the, the picture will come in and then drift out again. That's really very close to the experience that a remote viewer has as he tries to tune in and, and focus on the target. The information comes in in a fragmentary sort of way, um, and sometimes it's it's very dim and very difficult to make out, and other times it can become quite um, quite vivid. As a matter of fact, there is a a um, a phenomena which remote viewers occasionally undergo, which is called a bilocation. And a bilocation is where you identify so strongly with the target that you have really locked into it, such that it gives you the experience of actually being at the target site and your visuals and your experience um, uh, from a personal level in terms of how you see and hear and smell and taste becomes as vivid as if you were actually there and you can see just as well as you do right now, let's say, looking around the room. It can be that, that powerful an aspect. But there are other aspects about that bilocation that can be um, negative, and that is, for instance, when I was on uh, when I was doing the Mars session, um, I had the feeling like there was just not enough air to breathe, and I felt like I was suffocating. Uh, so powerful was the bilocation experience that I underwent, and so that can be a, a negative. Uh, aspect to a bilocation because it can detract from information gathering. You focus too much on the bilocation rather than the information that you are you are there to get. It, John, it's so interesting because I do a lot of astral projection, and that's what I would call astral projection as a form of bilocation. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering to what degree uh, we're actually just using a different term for the same process, but. Who knows? I mean, we're talking about a whole new domain of being a human being and experiencing things. One thing that I experienced when I was bilocating by your term, astral projecting by my term, uh, was it's very similar. I had such strong survival uh, instincts in that circumstance that I felt at risk until I reminded myself that I wasn't there in physical form and therefore physically I wasn't at jeopardy. And then I was able to take the experiences that I was having that seemed to be uh, survival-related and began to interpret what the environment was exposing me to uh, once I realized I'm not at jeopardy here, I'm not in physical form. So uh, that became a whole other form of data collecting. Uh, so how is that comparable or 
different than what you're talking about in terms of bilocation? Well, with a remote viewer, you you always know you are at the place where you are physically. Um, it's an extension of. I mean, consciousness. You're, 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 you're in front of the, you're in front of the desk and you're doing this meditation. Is that what you mean? Where you're at physically? Right, or you're lying down on, on okay. a couch somewhere or something like that. Uh, you never get this okay. idea that you're leaving your body, so to speak. It's a, it's more of an extension okay. of consciousness rather than, from what I understand, um, an out-of-the-body experience is. By its very nature, you're out of your body. Okay, With a remote viewer, he doesn't have or she doesn't have that particular type of experience. You always know that you are in a room someplace. Okay, So I would assume that the experience between a remote viewer and somebody who is astral projecting is going to be somewhat subtly different. But it's difficult to say for sure because I can't experience what you experience in an astral projection or an OBE versus you knowing what I do when I do my remote viewing and are undergoing a bilocation. All I can do is give the description of what it's like. Yeah, that's right. What's interesting is I had a um, an interesting conversation at the last Applied Precognition Project conference with um, uh, Joe McMonagle, probably the best-known remote viewer in the world. And sure. he was doing work with uh, Dr. Ed May, um, previously of the Stargate Project, um, mixing bilocations with lucid dreaming. Oh, yeah. And his experience of that was somewhat like the movie, um, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Oh, um, yes, Inception. Inception, that's the one. That's the one. And he said it's, it's, it can be actually dangerous because there are times that you get so into it into this bilocation type of experience, when you mix it with lucid dreaming, you can get into a situation where you no longer can tell whether or not you're dreaming or you're actually back again. And there have been times when he has actually thought he was back out of the session, and he wasn't. He was still in session. He was still lucid dreaming. Hmm. Interesting experiences, that, that is for sure the case. Uh, where do you think this is going to go in terms of human evolution if uh, a, a larger and larger number of people begin to embrace the training involved in being able to do remote viewing, bilocation, lucid dreaming, astral projection, let's just lump them all together right now. Where do you think the evolution of the human being could be? I don't know. Um, I think that... The oh, how can I put this? Um, when I started remote viewing back in 1999, I think the public perception of it is different. Was different back then. Uh, there was a yeah. lot of interest, a lot of interest. Um, oh, during the um, the er, the late 90s and into the early 2000s. I mean, the interest was just tremendous. And um, 
I think at that time it was there was a flowering, if you will, of remote viewing and the number of people who were involved in it. And I think that's kind of uh, tapered off somewhat. Um, the interest doesn't seem to be as focused on remote viewing any longer. It seems to be um, other areas that that people are into. So I don't think that the interest in remote viewing is as strong as it used to be. Um, I know that uh, in the seven years that I was with uh, Dave Morehouse, he taught over 22,000 people. And there were times when we had classes that had 60 to 100 people in them. And nowadays, um, you know, most of the instructors would say that, you know, it's, it's rare to have any more than 10 or 12. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. And I, I, would, I would think it's because it's difficult to do. You have to do it repeatedly over and over again. It's not like you can go for one time and necessarily have a good experience. Although I have to say that I've done a remote viewing classes where one person who's never done it before draws and articulates the target with incredible accuracy and everybody else who's been doing it kind of, you know, almost got there, but she was right on. So obviously some people can't experience this the first time run through, but mm-hmm. it, it takes work. It takes diligence and discipline, and that's a very different mindset than what the, the this next generation has. About yeah, these I think so things. too. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's first of all, you 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 should have a a qualified instructor. Um, there are a lot of people out there that purport to be remote viewers and yet have had never had any training or very little training at all and do it just for the money. Okay. So it's it's mm-hmm. really necessary to do your homework uh, to find um, uh, an mm-hmm. instructor that is qualified to teach it, and it does take a certain amount of dedication. Uh, in mm-hmm. order to get good at it, but then again, like you say, um, I've I've taught classes or been in classes with Dave, where you know you just have an extraordinary session by somebody who's relatively a brand new uh, remote viewer. So right. um, that's what's really exciting is when you're an instructor and you have somebody that has just an absolutely brilliant session uh, who is mm-hmm. just starting. And it can it can really be exciting to watch uh, a remote viewer flower, if you will, under those circumstances. Well, John, let's move on to brain entrainment uh, and uh, brain wavelengths uh, uh, that are measured while people are in remote viewing. I know we've discussed this so many times before. What is your current finding in terms of your own work with uh, brainwave equipment and your remote viewing process? Well, you know, my my experiences with um, brain entrainment and EEG biofeedback date back into the um, early 90s when I was involved in the Trojan Warrior 2 project. Uh, Trojan Warrior 2 was a outgrowth of a classified uh, U.S. Army Special Forces program um, called the uh, Project Trojan Warrior. And it was designed as a mind-body integration program to enhance the abilities of the Special Forces soldier. And when the program was declassified, I got involved in a rebirth of the program uh, 
uh, and we we worked with a group of Navy SEALs um, to bring this program. And um, three of the people that I worked with, um, one of them was from the original program, uh, Dr. <laughs> James Hart from uh, UCLA. And I also worked <laughs> with Drs. Siegfried and Susan Othmer from Cornell University. And... Um, Dr. Mike Curiari from NASA. And we worked with a machine hmm. called the the Neuroscan, I believe it was 24. There were 24 leads on it. And hmm. we used that um, for EEG biofeedback in the program to, um, to try and, at first it was research, to try and find different types of uh, feedback in the various um, brainwave states to see which one was conducive to an enhancement of physical or mental ability. And oh, yes. th- then we, 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 um, we used specific protocols uh, in order to bring about those brainwave states to uh, increase a person's focus, if you will, or a person's um, ability to relax in a, in a tense situation. And so that was my introduction to EEG back then. And then when I got into remote viewing, uh, the technology had increased. And nowadays you can actually go and pick up a handheld uh, headband, like my Muse, for instance, that can give you really accurate readings of, um, EEG that you can use for biofeedback training. And um, I've found that when doing, for instance, a CRV session, a coordinate remote view- viewing session, uh, in watching my brainwave states, the, um, the different wavelengths on the screen, uh, I find that as I cool down and start doing a remote viewing session, the gamma, which is a very high frequency form, and beta um, will be somewhat suppressed, and the alpha and low beta become more enhanced. And then when I'm doing the writing, it reverses, and the gamma and high beta come back into play. So these two waveforms shift back and forth depending upon whether or not I'm, I'm relaxed and doing the, the receiving, if you will, or the trying to see, uh, record what the, what's going on. And then when I decode it by writing it down on the paper, these two waveforms will shift back and forth. And then the, also in the background, there's a constant raising and lowering of the theta, which is uh, a deeper level of uh, brainwave state which is usually um, um, considered to be your uh, more intuitive um, area of brainwave state. So that's what I've seen so far in the use of, um, of EEG biofeedback. And it would be... What a, Go ahead. Sorry. Go no, ahead. That's okay. What I was going to say was, 
what what really helps is to do regular sessions in EEG using the the Muse device to enhance your focus and enhance your your relaxation level so that when it tends to to help you to do a more successful uh, remote viewing session. Hmm. So what what you're suggesting then is that for a person to get uh, better with remote viewing, they could use the information on these head, these neurobiofeedback tools to move them into a lowering their gamma and their beta and going to the going to the low beta and the high alpha, is that correct, as a way of saying, okay, now I'm in a receptive brainwave modality. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah. The idea is when I first put on the muse, for instance, and I, and I, and I look at the screen, um, the preponderance of the brainwaves that are, that are showing on the screen in terms of their power spectrum, meaning that um, the more beta you show, the higher the level you're going to see on the screen. Um, you will see primarily uh, the frequencies in the low gamma and the high beta area, because that's our that's our usual um, uh, everyday standpoint. Uh, you know, we we deal with so many things uh, on a on a daily basis that we we usually run in in a higher level, okay, in order to meet everyday demands. But as you cool down and you start to relax and um, and try and uh, reach a state of equanimity, then you see the brainwave states change and you start seeing a, a reduction in the gamma, the higher gammas and the higher betas, and to drip, those start getting suppressed, and you see the alphas and the thetas start to rise and become more enhanced. And that's what you want to happen. For a, for a remote viewing session. And it also has, you know, um, uh, unforeseen aspects as well that, that are uh, healthy for you because it reduces the leveling of anxiety in an individual. And anytime you have that, um, you have a lessening of stress hormones, which, of course, um, enhances a person's well-being and health. This is fascinating for me because I have I, I teach class on brain entrainment and brainwave control and things of that or influence and it's just fascinating to hear. You know, John, the thing that I have discovered is that every single person has an entirely different brainwave pattern. It's fascinating to hear that you have so much gamma and beta on your normal on your normal reads. Because a lot of people don't have much gamma, uh, so so it's like it, it, there's uh, a lot of people uh, might cluster around the theta and the delta because they tend to be really chilled out, cool kind of always in this state of nirvana type bliss. <laughs> well, I and don't know too many people like that. <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 it's very interesting to be with people like this because they have a very different process. And, and very di- different evidencing on their brainwaves than someone that has a lot of gamma and beta, such as what you were suggesting about yourself. So well, you, an extrapolation uh, you from... 
You have to understand, too, though, that each one of us is an individual. And if you look at yes. my background, then you might understand why I would have uh, that particular yes. uh, aspect on my uh, brainwave states. Um, yeah. you know, I am a former law enforcement officer. I am also, you know, I've worked for two large metropolitan departments. I was an academy instructor. Um, I'm also uh, a former uh, private military contractor who worked with um, a, num- uh, a number of the special operations forces. So my training would be completely different from somebody like one of the people that you're talking yes. about. Yes, it's exactly where I was going in this discussion. That, And that's why I find that the training of remote viewing is a, intriguing to me because truly I believe that the training for remote viewing has to be individualized to the degree that everybody understanding what their natural brainwave level is might actually have a different approach. I think for myself actually, when I am in a receptive mode for remote viewing, I tend to have more beta and gamma at those moments. Um, it's like that is that is somehow the channel I tune into the hurts that I am creating while I'm in the process of being uh, receiving information. In contrast, when I'm in a very deep and relaxed state of of relaxation and just relaxation, which people might call a kind of empty brain meditation modality, I do go down to the theta and the delta. But I go so much into the beta, excuse me, the delta and the theta that I'm actually not very well equipped at those points in time to receive any information because I'm so relaxed. <laughs> so, you know, it's like yeah, I think you have to kind of say, well, who am I in a state of receptivity to information that is going through the ether, going through the psychic realms, going through uh, the the connection to whatever we're connecting to when we're doing remote viewing, uh, or that we have to know where are we best a receiver of information where are we best a creator of information, which is an entirely different thing, and where are we best when we're totally chilled out and relaxed? So, you know, it's interesting um, that you that you mention that because one of the things that Dave Morehouse does, uh, because he teaches, or well, I should say he used to teach. Uh, he doesn't teach anymore, but when he did teach, he always taught CRV first, uh, and then once right. you had had a grounding in CRV. Uh, he would he would teach you extended remote viewing or ERV, and the reason he did that was because in CRV, um, it's like I just previously explained. Um, you know, you 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 cool down. You know, you relax down, and you're in basically a a relaxed state that most people are familiar with. I mean, if you are reading a good book or if you are watching TV, for instance, and are engrossed in the program, then basically what's happening is is that your your higher frequencies, like the gammas and betas, are going to be suppressed, and the lower mm-hmm. frequencies are going to be enhanced, like, as you say, the, um, the alpha and uh, the high thetas. Okay, and that's a, so that's a state of being that most people are familiar with. Now, in the other form of remote viewing, extended remote viewing, as practiced um, by Dave Morehouse and those who were involved in the Stargate project when it was called Sunstreak in the, the late 1980s, 
uh, they use a very, very deep form of meditation that goes far beyond um, what you would normally experience, uh, as I just related. You're talking about very, very deep meditative states in the deep theta, almost on the verge of delta. And this is a, a arena, if you will, that most people are unfamiliar with. And so the success rates in ERV are usually less than they are in, in the, uh, the CRV portion. I mean, Dave Morehouse used to tell his students that, you know, those of you who go on to ERV, some of you will like it and will, will really adapt to it like fish and water, and others will not. You know, others will just be really uncomfortable in that arena and will go back to um, CRV. And that's fine. I mean, whatever modality that you find most um, efficacious is, you know, the right way. I mean, both of both forms will get you the information you want. They just do it in a different mm-hmm. manner. Well, that's interesting, again, hear the take of the different brain waves. Have you done any research about the location in the brain that's associated to any of these sorts of things, such as the pineal gland or the pineal gland, however you else you want to say that, or you know, any um, other uh, I've, question of the brain? You know, it's interesting. In talking with Ed May and uh, Joe McMonagall, they believe that there are no... Um, active correlates between remote viewing and brainwave states. They don't seem to see that much of a difference in the brainwave states when, when um, they look at the, at the EEGs of practitioners. However, that being said, um, I've noticed the difference in the subtle differences in my brainwave state while using the Muse when I do CRV. So knowing the the difference, the huge difference between an, a CRV state and an ERV state and recalling my experiences when I've had when I've been in an ERV session where I've had a bilocation, every time that I underwent these bilocations in ERV they were always preceded by a set series of physical, um, uh, what would you call it, physical um, happenings, if you will, so that I would find it very difficult to believe that there would not be a, a, a change, a noticeable change of my EEG when I went when I underwent a bilocation. I, I cannot confirm that because I've never used my Muse in an ERV session where I've had a bilocation. It's something that I would like to do. I just haven't had the time recently. But hmm. it's on my list of things to do. Uh, currently, I, 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 work with, I, I do a lot of work with the Applied Precognition Project with Marty Rosenblatt. And so my time hmm. right now has been taken up primarily with that. So I really haven't had a chance to do a a really good deep ERV session where I've had a bilocation. Um, if if you read my book, you will understand why these ERV sessions with a bilocation are 
so astounding because mm-hmm. they give you the impression that you are right there at the target and you can see it just as clear as you would as if you were actually there. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And there were always, always a set series of physical manifestations that occurred before that happened. So I always knew that I was hmm. going to enter a bilocation, and I always knew that I was at the target. What were those experiences? Well, <clears throat> normally in in uh, ERV mode, you you are trained to drop to a very very deep meditative state, uh, what is called a hypnagogic state, and it's in this state where you have a preponderance of theta waves, and your your higher frequencies are suppressed, and it's you go down so far in this state that it's not unusual to cycle down into a sleep uh, pattern, and it's mm-hmm. not unusual for an ERVer to fall asleep briefly. The idea is though right. you train yourself to come back up, otherwise you spend the you'll spend the session you know snoring away and not get any information at all. And that does, and that's one of the reasons why n- not everybody is is um, good at getting an ERV session well well done. Um, like I said, it's it's a, a smaller percentage of people that are comfortable at that deep level. Uh, I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to have the the EEG biofeedback training back during the Trojan Warrior Two um, training sessions and research sessions. So I had an advantage mm-hmm. over the other students that were in Dave's classes. Mm-hmm. And so Learning how for to me, do that. Yeah, for me, getting down into that state was relatively easy, and I had my first bilocation uh, on my my um, my second remote viewing session. So, oh, nice. Yeah, and it was you know it was a constant thing. I um, I would say probably uh, at least half of the sessions that I did were bilocations. So it was for me. It was it was quite easy to get down that far, um, but it's again it, with more most people not having the experience that I had, it was much more difficult for them, <clears throat> and not everybody made the um, the transition from CRV to ERV. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's I, interesting, I, I, John. I, really I don't believe, know. I really believe, though, uh, Carol, that there is. A change, a what can I say? There is a set EEG that will show this this transition to a bilocation and hmm. in ERV because for me it was so strong and it was always the same thing each time. What would happen is I would I would cool down and I would I would relax and I get really really deep to the point where um, I could no longer feel my body. I mean my body. Right. Your somatic sensation completely disappears, and as I got deeper, um, my I would um, involuntarily have muscle spas- spasms that would would occur, what were called myoclonic spasms. Mm-hmm. And just after that would happen, I would have this intense feeling of falling, as if the floor had dropped out underneath me, and it was here. Mm-hmm that if I was caught unawares, um, I would 
drop out of the ERV state. But if I held right. on to it and I was able to keep myself from from being caught unawares, if you will, then that intense dropping feeling would occur and it would immediately um, lead to the bilocation. And suddenly it was yep. as if I was at the target and I could see it just as well as if I was standing right next to you. Yeah, yeah that's exactly the way you describe uh, astral projection, John. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. We go about that's the, interesting that we have. Yeah, if, no. We have if, a, you start, if you do start, you know, start doing the research on astral projection, I think you're going to find that uh, whether it's Robert Monroe or or just anybody, you'll you'll find that the astral projection experience is very similar to what you have just said, which once again makes me think that that there's just a crossover in terminology more than anything else. Also, John, are you aware that in in the Hindu tradition, bilocation was a term that was reserved for when actually the the guru would appear in in actual visible form in more than one location at the same time, so that there would be witnesses, so to speak, to the guru being in one place and simultaneously in another place. And it would be fascinating to find out if anybody actually seems to see you in those circumstances. Any such reactions? Um, in none of the... We've actually um, done some experiments with that with Dave Morehouse in his uh, classes, and no one has ever actually seen... Um, uh, an, an apparition that would be considered to be the the, the ERV. Or um, people have said at the target site when doing a beacon experiment, where you have somebody at the target site that is actually there viewing the target, and what you're supposed to do is to tune into that person. So it's more telepathy than anything else. Um, but there, there has never been anyone who has ever said that they've seen an apparition that would uh, uh, conform to a, a, a remote viewer actually being at the target site. Okay, there have been hmm. anecdotal evidence that says, you know, I have, I had the impression that I felt like somebody was there. But then again, mm-hmm. that is entirely um, subjective. Too subjective. Never, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as to you know a yogic apparition that would appear um, by an ERVer, it's uh, as far as I know that's never been demonstrated. Hmm. That's interesting. What is applied cognition? That program you're doing with Rosenblatt. Oh, uh, the applied precognition project. It's actually um, a project that was started by um, Marty Rosenblatt. Um, He's a researcher in consciousness studies. He's a former mathematical physicist. And he started the program to get people involved in a fun way, if you will, of learning uh, remote viewing and putting it to use. And Hmm. what he does is he uses remote viewing to predict what uh, will happen, let's say, during a sports game, you know, uh, whether or not one team will win or another team will win by looking ahead into the mm. future or by finding out what a particular financial, like a stock or, a, or a, um, an option, is going to do in the future. And he uses it actually in trading um, currencies and 
<coughs> excuse me, uh, currencies and uh, other uh, financial um, transactions. And they use it in sports betting as well. And it's a fun way to make a little money on the side and to learn remote viewing in a practical application. Have you seen some consequences that are worthy of noting? Well, um, Marty and I turned $2,000 into 13000 in a period nice. of nine months. Nice. So it, there is a, um, a nice reward aspect, if you will, to doing okay. this. Um, some remote viewers have done really, really well. Others have not done so well. Um, but it, what it's doing is it's giving, I mean, literally over the last year or so, we have done hundreds of viewings. And so that adds up to a large statistical evidence uh, yes, for just thinking. Um, the reality of remote viewing. Uh, technically, uh, if remote viewing didn't exist or was not efficacious, you would have a 50-50% chance of hitting um, the, the correct um, hit on these, these uh, remote viewing sessions. But most of the viewers, not all of them, but most of the viewers are upwards of 65 to 70 to 75 percent, which is a full 25 points above um, chance. Now, you can't take something like that and say, you know, that's an aspect that is not scientifically valid. Not when you do when hmm. you've done literally over. 150 sessions. That is statistically significant. What is it? What is the outcome again? What's the percentage? Well, basically, what you're doing is you've got a 50-50% chance of hitting the right. the correct answer, and the ans- and it's basically a binary choice: is the stock going to rise or is it going to stay the same or fall? So that's a binary right. choice. So you've got a 50-50. Percent chance of of guessing, if you will, the correct outcome. But if you're using remote viewing, you're not guessing. You are actively looking ahead into the future and seeing what the correct answer is. And so, if you have an advantage of fifteen to twenty-five percent over chance, that gives you a huge advantage. So now I guess I have to ask you in our closing moments, do you think you possibly are doing remote influencing instead of seeing into the future? No, because the the intention that is involved, and remote viewing is intention-driven, is not to influence but rather to simply observe, if you will, the correct outcome. So we, I don't believe that we are doing much in terms of the influencing of the outcome. Rather, we are look, only looking towards what the outcome will finally be. But it would be interesting to see oh, whether or not, you know, remote influencing 
into the future might be possible if that would change the statistics. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a big advocate of remote influencing because I think that empowering people to not only see, which is remote viewing, is amazing, but then to empower people to remote influence for the betterment, obviously, of humankind is mm-hmm. a, is actually a whole other dimension of of giving human beings the opportunity to make good and wonderful acts on each other. Well, in our closing times here, John, because this topic goes on and on in intrigue <laughs> and interest, what would you like to say to people? Well, I think that it's it's really a fascinating area of personal discovery, and I would uh, like to invite everyone to learn more about uh, remote viewing and the possibilities that are inherent in this um, form of activity. Uh, I would encourage them to find out more. There's a lot of information on the web, and um, there is also, uh, as a resource, my book, A Sorcerer's Apprentice, yeah. A Skeptic's Journey into the CIA's Project Stargate, um, to give more information. And there are a number of other authors out there, uh, like Paul Smith and uh, Joe McMonagall, Dave Morehouse, uh, Lynn Buchanan, uh, Ed May, um, Skip Atwater. There are a number of people out there that have books that have that they have written regarding their experiences in this arena mm-hmm. that are just mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. Yes, they are. And your book is among them. I loved reading your book. Again, folks, you will have a, an aha experience as you read John Herlovsky's book, A Sorcerer's Apprentice, Skeptic's Journey, uh, into the CIA's Project Stargate. I didn't realize the whole title was there, but you'll be able to find that on Amazon. And also, I think you have a website, com. Is that correct, John? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. So, folks, check this all out. And please, I always encourage you to think outside the box. Now I want you to experience outside this little teeny box you've put yourself in as this human being, as if you think you, wouldn't it be nice to be able to do such and such and such? Well, maybe wouldn't it be nice can be translated into, yes, it is nice. And yes, let's go forth and evolve the human species so we can live in peace, love, harmony, creativity, and intrigue. What do you think, John? Does that sound like a good, a good motto for our future? <laughs> I certainly think so. I would hope that most everybody else would too. Yeah. John, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for your time, your expertise, and your intriguing contemplations. Have a great and day. Thank you, and as always, it was a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.